Picture yourself in a lake, in the middle of a lake, and you begin to drown. You go under the water, you start to sense that panic, you are wondering what's going to happen, and it's starting to get darker in both, not just in your surroundings, but just also internally, and you get enough strength to push yourself up, you break through the surface, and you look and you see there is a boat right near where you went down, and you can see in the boat there's a person, and they have a life vest, but instead of throwing it, you notice they're sitting there and they're reading the warning labels and instructions on the life vest as you're there, ready to lose your life. In some ways, spiritually speaking, that's where the people were when they heard the gospel of Mark delivered to them for the first time. They were in a spot where they needed a lifeline and they needed it now. They didn't need explanation. They didn't need a buildup of proofs. They needed Jesus right now. You see, the beautiful thing about the way the Bible is put together is the first four books of the New Testament, which we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all written by different people with different perspectives for different purposes. Matthew was writing to a primarily Jewish audience who needed to know that Jesus was the promised one from Messiah. Luke was writing to a group of people to highlight and show Jesus was the one who would overturn injustices of the world. Things like poverty and how children and orphans and women were treated. John was written to show that this Jesus is the one who is sent from God who brings life and love eternally. And now we look to Mark where we're going to camp out and begin a series. And what Mark was, Mark was a lifeline to people who were currently being persecuted for their faith. There were people who were being told, you renounce your faith in Jesus Christ or you get tortured and are put to death by the Roman Empire. They were under this strict, oppressive hand, and they needed a lifeline. They needed to be anchored right now. It wasn't the time to have proof. It wasn't the time to have discussions about whether or not this is true. They just needed the lifeline. And I don't know where you're at this morning. My guess is you haven't come in here coming from a time where you've been tortured for your faith. My guess is you haven't come in this room where you've been persecuted harshly for your faith, maybe slightly. But what I do know is no matter how you came, more than likely, you're facing something where you need to be anchored in Jesus Christ. You need to be anchored in God's only Son. And what I'm excited about is as we dive into this book called uh, the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus Christ, and we're going to have the ability to be anchored in him and have our faith anchored in that place where it should. We're calling this series Amazed. And the reason we're calling it Amazed is when you read through the book of Mark, you see that the people who interacted and encountered Jesus, the Son of God, they were amazed. It says, as Jesus taught and preached, the people were amazed at his teaching. They said, as Jesus came in and healed the sick and casted out demons and did all these amazing things, it left the people amazed. You see this word amazed everywhere it goes. And my prayer, my hope, is that we as Crossview Church, when we interact with God's word, specifically his book of Mark, that we would be amazed at what we see here. 
that our hearts would be filled with amazement. And so as we endeavor this, I encourage you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is about three-quarters of the way in the Bible. You'll see Matthew, and then it's the second book of the New Testament. You'll see Mark. And we're going to start right in chapter 1, the very first eight verses. If you're using a Bible we provide for you here in the Worship Center, I'll be on page 887, and you can also follow, follow along in the Church Center app as well. We're calling the title of this message this morning The Amazing Message, and the reason it's called that is because I had no idea what to title this, and Ryan and I got together, we get together on a weekly meeting to plan our worship services, and Ryan said, why don't you call it The Amazing Message? And I said, it sounds sort of arrogant, doesn't it, to say my message is The Amazing Message? And he said, oh, I don't know, just blame me, I'm the one who thought of it, so I am. So if it comes off arrogant, just blame Mark, he's the one who did it. But the key thing is we're not talking about this message on Sunday morning. This amazing message we're talking about is the message that changes lives for eternity, the message of Jesus Christ. And he is the one that we want to look at because he is the one that is brought forth in this amazing book called the Gospel of Mark. And so today we're laying a foundation, and I want to begin as Mark begins by giving us the source of this message, the source of of this message. Look at the first three verses of Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. In these first initial three verses, we see three incredible things about the source of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But before we dive into those, I just want to say the word gospel means good news. Gospel means good news. And in the ancient world, when they encountered this word good news, they used it for all sorts of reasons that meant good news was coming. They used it for the birth of a royal. And they said, this is good news. They used it for uh, updates from battles from the Roman Empire where the Roman Empire was advancing. And there was a, a good feeling that the empire was advancing. So they brought back and they said, we have good news that the empire is advancing. They used it for when the emperor would come. They said, we have good news. You're going to hear from your emperor. That's how they used it. But the ancient church took that word that was used for good news and they applied it to the greatest news that can ever be given to a human being. They applied it to the story and the fact of how someone who is spiritually dead becomes spiritually alive through the power and the cross and the person of Jesus Christ. So they said this gospel, this good news, is applied to the greatest message that can face a human soul, namely that Jesus came, he died, he, rose, he was buried, and he rose again, and now he is the one who can give life. That's good news. And the early church grabbed on to that. So there's three things about this good news and its source that I want to look at. And the first one is that the gospel was before time. The gospel was before time. If you look, it says right in the beginning, the very first words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark introduces it this way, but what we need to understand is the gospel was existing long before Mark wrote this. The gospel always was. 
The gospel was in the heart of God before earth, time, and space were even created. The gospel was in the heart of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, who always existed long before Mark even came on the scene. The gospel was. Because the gospel had its origins in the heart of God. So what does that mean? Stop and think about this. God was not shocked when there was an angel named Lucifer who rebelled against him in heaven and took a legion of demons with him in his rebellion and left the heavenly places. God was not shocked when after creating Adam and Eve and enjoying fellowship with them, they ate from the tree that God told them not to and rebelled against God. God wasn't shocked by that. God wasn't shocked when Cain killed his brother Abel and murder was introduced into the world for the very first time. God wasn't shocked by that. God saw all that was going to happen from the beginning all the way through. And the gospel was always his first plan intention to redeem people back to himself. And what he did is he wove this amazing gospel message into the fabric of world history as his way to bring people to himself and give himself glory and honor. The gospel always was. The gospel was always there. It wasn't just now when Mark began. It began long before in the heart of God. It's his plan that he didn't have to adapt or change. It always was. He sees it all from the beginning to now. And people say, well, then that causes lots of questions. How come we can't understand this? And how come we can't understand that? Primarily because the end of the story hasn't happened yet. You're still in the middle. When Jesus comes the second time and rules and reigns, there's a lot of questions that will be answered. In the meantime, we have to wrestle with that tension and be okay with it because he's God and we are not. And we need to understand that he functions outside of this time and space and reality we have. The creator will not be known by the creation exhaustively and fully. He can be known enough to have relationship with, but he is God, we are not. And this gospel was in its heart from the beginning. The second thing is this gospel was from God himself. Even though Mark is writing to a non-Jewish people, he links this gospel of Jesus Christ with the promises that were given to the people of God throughout the Old Testament. He links it to God's covenant. And he does this primarily by taking two prophets in the Old Testament and sets them up right here in the beginning, the prophet Malachi and the prophet Isaiah. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. He's taking two voices from the Old Testament and bringing them here to announce this beginning of what's going to happen in the son and ministry of God through Jesus Christ. He's connecting the dots, if you will, of what God has done uh, that, to show this is a fulfilled promise that was talked about in the Old Testament. God's Messiah came out of the faithfulness of God to his people in past days. And he says the content of this message is that God's promise was a forerunner. A messenger would emerge before the Son of God came. A messenger would come who would announce, prepare the way of the Lord. A messenger would come to make sure people are ready to receive and know and hear the Son of God who is to come to earth. 
You see, this is a concept the first hearers would totally get and understand. Because before a royal person would come to a city in the Roman Empire, people would go there days before from the empire, and they would dress the place up. They would get it ready. They would level hills so that the emperor or the dignitary could be seen. They would clean up garbage. They would do what they had to do. And so when people saw this envoy come from Rome and begin to dress things up and get things ready, they knew it's time to prepare for the king. They knew something big was about to happen. And Mark captures that language and he says, in this person of John the Baptist who's going to come and prepare, you need to hear his message and know that it's time to prepare for your king. It's time to prepare for the arrival of the one who was promised throughout the ages in the Old Testament, and now the time has come. The kingdom of God is now at hand. It's time to prepare. So just as the people noticed the envoys from Rome coming, it was a trigger for them to prepare for the arrival of the king. So John the Baptist's coming that Mark writes about here is to prepare the people for the coming of their eternal king, Jesus Christ. So not only is the gospel from God, the gospel is a person. In these first three verses, it's talking about the promised one to come. It's talking about Jesus Christ. And the gospel is not a mystery to unravel. It's not a philosophy to understand. It's not even a set of principles to live your life on. The gospel is a person. The person is Jesus Christ himself. The gospel is who he is and what he has done. This good news is the person of Jesus. That's what this good news is. Think about how you came in here this morning. Think about whatever's the forefront of your mind that you can't seem to shake. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's watching a loved one go through something that is terrible and that breaks your heart. Maybe it's a question that you can't seem to get answered. Maybe it's a sin that you can't seem to get free from. Maybe it's the guilt and the weight and shame of something you did in the past that continues to nag at you. Maybe it's the heartache of a difficult trial. I don't know how you came in this morning, but think about how you came in. And what I'd like to just say to you is however you came in, whatever you're dealing with, what this is saying is that the ultimate answer to that issue, the ultimate answer to that pain, the ultimate answer to that is the life and person of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate one that goes to the root of all that. And what this is saying is that the person of Jesus Christ is now available to us because God moved and did something. God did something. God knew the state we would be in. God cared as he saw that. God gave his son and God came in the midst of it. And because he did that, as we see here in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, it affects our lives right here, right now, in 2020. In this moment, it matters. God moved, and something happened. Namely, his son came to save the people from their sins 
and from the effects of a fallen world. So the gospel was before time, the gospel was from God, and the gospel is a person, Jesus Christ. And now Mark shifts from the source of this message and the kind of essence and the things and the origins of that message, and he shifts to the purpose of this message. He looks at the purpose of this message. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. It says, John the Baptist, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. We see two things here in this purpose of this message that John is proclaiming. The first thing we need to know is that this baptism was totally radical. This baptism was totally radical. It was seen as a ritual washing. It wasn't like the baptisms that we practice now when we baptize somebody. It's an inward, it's an outward expression of an inward reality. They come to faith in Jesus Christ and they're baptized. It was a different, a little bit different than that. It was this ritual washing from the defilements of sin at the time. So Jewish people had their ceremonies that they would go through up to this time. They would have the ceremonies that would happen. This practice of baptism was namely reserved for Gentiles. It was namely reserved for Gentiles to create within them God-fearing people. And so they saw the Jewish people had their ceremonial rites. They knew it because they weren't Jewish. They couldn't participate in that. But how do I express my fear, my honor to God? So this baptism was created. But here is the crazy, crazy thing. The Jewish people were going out to get baptized. Look at the verse And what it says in verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. You see, human need breaks all the rules. People were cut to the heart. They wanted to get close to God. They knew they were far away. They knew that they were deep in their sin and they couldn't get out. They knew they were in desperation as sinful people before a holy God and they wanted something to happen. And so they moved to go to this place to hear this one who's talking about the one to come who will take away the sins of the world. And they were cut deeply. And they came in droves. It was like somebody going from Milwaukee to Wisconsin Rapids and walking the whole way to get there. That's what this Judean countryside, Jerusalem, was to come to the wilderness to hear John the Baptist. You don't do that unless you're desperate. They were sick of their sin. They were sick of being apart from a holy God. And they wanted to be brought back in. They wanted to walk closely with their God. And so they went to hear this person named John the Baptist who was proclaiming this baptism of repentance. And that's the second thing we say is that this baptism focused on the repentance of sin. And where it was taking place is huge. The wilderness location is intentional. The bap- to be baptized in the wilderness, especially for a Jewish person coming in, 
scholars say it was like symbolic for them, like they were going back into the times of their ancestors, back in the Old Testament when they just came out of Egypt and God led them through the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, on into the wilderness for the journey for the promised land. And just as God brought them out of Egypt and they needed to be cleansed from all those Egyptian practices they were mixing in with uh, the Jewish rites, God now is putting on the heart of his people to be coming out of the ways of the world and become clean and brought forward so that you can be presented to a holy God. The Jewish people knew why they were coming out to the Jordan. And they came in droves. They would come. As I said, distances in our mind, like Milwaukee to here. And they would come, they'd sit before John the Baptist and he'd preach to them. At first to hundreds, then to thousands. And as they gathered around to hear him preach, he would preach as they sat along the Jordan River. And they listened to him. Do you know what he preached? He preached about their sins. He preached against their sins. He preached giving them warning of God's judgment. And as they gathered around the shore of the Jordan River to hear him preach, he would begin preaching and then he would more than likely call out specific sins against this holy God. He would call out adultery and idolatry and murder, and hate. He would then call out people by name and personalize it. He would see this Gentile person, thinking of a Roman Gentile name, Stavros, and they'd say, Stavros, the thing you did last night on your way here that plagues your mind and causes guilt, that's a sin before a holy God, and the judgment of God is upon you for that. He'd call out the Jewish people who are coming, Gamiel, that thing you did three years ago, God wants you to know it's a sin before him. He's holy, and his judgment is burning against you because of that thing. He would call out these sins, and they came in droves because they knew that there was a something behind that, that if it's called out, God could be loving enough, merciful enough to take care of it. They knew that they had to get real with it. They knew they had to call it what it was. It wasn't good enough just to pretend like it wasn't there. They had to bring it out and call it what it is, and it's offensive, and as offensive as it can be, but they also had this hope that God promised he would bring us back to himself. You see, the gospel is offensive. When we hear the gospel, it's an offensive message. You're a sinner. And your sin is causing you to stand in judgment before a holy God. That's an offensive message. But it's true. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we have to spell out that message. Because if you don't understand that, this whole good news doesn't make any sense. Because then it's just news and it's not good. What makes the good news good is it saves us from the realities of where we live in, in our sin and our shame and our faults. But what we're seeing here is this process of that being called out. 
They would form endless lines to be baptized as a symbol that they were repenting of their sin and coming back to a holy God. And they came by the droves because they wanted to be relieved from the conviction they felt in their heart. What a gift God gave them in the preaching of John the Baptist. What a gift God gave them to have someone come and preach sin and the judgment of God upon sin because there was time to repent. You see, it's worse if all of a sudden you don't have an opportunity to repent and you're faced with the shortcomings and failures of your sin. God was gracious in sending John the Baptist to give him this moment to hear that what sin is really about and to hear the judgment God has. And there is no other way to look at this than but a gift from God's hand, as uncomfortable and offensive it is. You see, in our culture, we've become so resistant to offense. Whatever you do, don't offend anybody. And I'm not saying that we go picking fights for the sake of picking fights. I'm not saying we go and be offensive just for the sake of being offensive. But as the church of Jesus Christ, we have got to get over this thing that we can't call people to repentance of their sin and say that sin is being judged by a holy God because it'll offend somebody. The moment we do that, we give up the gospel and its power. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes to save people from their sin. But the way to get them to understand the gospel is not to make sin more comfortable, not to make sin more palatable. We have to call it what it is. It's an offense against the holy God that he's going to judge. And thankfully for us, he provided a way because he took the judgment of that sin and poured it upon his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That now if we ask him in, we can be covered under that payment for sin that happened long ago. You see, when men and women are awakened to the seriousness of their own sin and God's righteous justice, they become eager listeners to the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings forgiveness. That's why we have to talk about it. That's why it has to happen. You see, in this setting, the Preaching and the baptism of repentance that came for the forgiveness of sin is what set them up for the gospel of Jesus Christ to come. This is what preparing the way for Jesus was all about. Divine, proper preparation for the gospel is preaching and recognizing sin for what it is, a serious offense to a holy God. And when we see that it's a serious offense to a holy God and we preach it in that way, it leaves us begging for mercy. And when there's a human being who's begging for mercy, you know their heart is right for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know that God has prepared their heart to receive this amazing good news. But if there's someone who's not at a spot where they're begging for mercy, where they don't understand the weight of their sin, and that hasn't happened, if you try to give them the gospel without that happening first, it's like you're just wasting things away. Jesus knew that. There has to be a recognizing of the need. Every human being 
needs this gospel, whether they recognize the need or not. Every human being needs this amazing story. And they first must be confronted with the reality of sin. Look at how John the Baptist lived in verse 6. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I pondered this week, why would Mark put that in there in the midst of this thing? And if you read that, it harkens back to an Old Testament prophet named Elijah who looked and lived the same way. It's like God was saying the spirit that was on Elijah to call people into a repentant relationship with the holy God is now upon John the Baptist. So there's one part of that's why he put it in there. But there's another part why he put it in there. He put it in there to show us that Mark's or that the John the Baptist's lifestyle matched what he was preaching. He wasn't being seduced by the ways of this world. And it was key he put that in there because during that time and place, many religious leaders and religious rulers were being seduced by the Roman Empire to ease off on the things they believed in. Many of the Jewish leaders were receiving money from the Roman Empire to keep the Jewish people in check so they wouldn't revolt against the empire. But in order to do that, they had to compromise some of their messages that God called them to preach. And what Mark's doing is he's saying John the Baptist stood in total contrast to that nonsense. He lived in a different way. It wasn't just words. His words were backed with the integrity of his life. That he wasn't seduced by the ways of the world. He stood as one opposite countercultural, living for the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God alone. Living for God's glory. The desire to live for God's ways and his glory were so much greater for John the Baptist than to cater and pander and compromise and mix into his life the ways of the given world. And you know what the result was? People took notice. There's something different about this guy. He's living what he's preaching There was power in his message because of how he lived. There was power because he turned from the world's wicked ways and lived for holiness for God. That's why it's so crucial for us as Christians that once we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we don't just pray this little prayer, then live however we want and think that we got it all figured out. The little prayer was designed for you to have a marking point where you make a decision to give your life and turn total surrender, full ownership over to Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you must live by the power of the Holy Spirit and ask God to help you live a holy life. It's a gospel-empowered holiness. It's not a holiness that comes from just following a list of do's and don'ts. That's too weak. You need something stronger than that. It's a holiness that comes from God living inside of you who helps you and assists you. And when you fall, you repent and you ask forgiveness, but you keep going and you make it your aim to live out a holy life before a holy God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to live a message contrary to self and sin. See, we need to recover that as the church of Jesus Christ in the United States. 
There was quite a mix-up at the Duke University hospitals in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina in 2004. In 2004, maintenance crews drained all the hydraulic fluid out of all the elevators in the building one night as they were doing repairs, and they put them in these empty drums. The problem was the empty drums were used to hold, uh, at one time before they were emptied, obviously, detergent that would be used to clean surgical instruments. So all the labels on the drums were still detergent labels for surgical instruments. Instead of the old hydraulic fluid being disposed of, it got into the supply pipeline for the detergents to be used on medical surgical instruments. True story. It took two months and 3,800 surgeries before they figured it out. Washing the instruments in hydraulic fluid that was dirty was not an effective means of sterilization, as you can imagine. And so the biggest question is, what kind of damage was done to the patients? No one was sure what this petroleum residue would do to the people who were experiencing the surgeries from these instruments. And the hospital's top administrator got on public TV and did an address about this whole issue. And he opened by saying, we want to give people the message and confidence that we care about our patients. That's probably a true statement. I'm sure they did care about their patients. But their instruments weren't safe. They were a threat to their patients. No matter how much they cared for their patients, the instruments were a threat to them. A, care, a church that is careless about holiness is exactly like that hospital. We can say we care for people. We can say we love people. But if we're not living out holy lives and carrying out the gospel the way that God intended, then we're not caring for the people that we're presenting this gospel to. We may care about people, but we're a danger to them nonetheless if we don't live the way God has called us to live after we've asked him into our life. It isn't enough to share the gospel with the lost. We must also be sure that we're taking this gospel, living it out, and walking out holy ways that teach them how to live once they connect to Jesus Christ. Or else we harm the people of God and the people we're trying to reach. Mark finishes this part by stating an amazing quote from John the Baptist in verses 7 to 8. He says, He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals, speaking of Jesus Christ. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the repentance of sin was the first part of John's message. Now he's talking about an ultimate baptism. The first part was a recognition of sins before a holy God. The second is a spiritual healing that will come and bring new life. You see, he told them, I am one who will drench you with water externally, but another is going to come who's going to drench you with the power of the Holy Spirit internally, that as you give your life to him and that comes, you'll be empowered to live a holy life. That's the only way you're going to do it. This is all part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Part of the gospel is living it out in the power of the Holy Spirit to live a holy life. What a beautiful picture we have. 
When we become Christians, the moment you ask Jesus Christ into your life and you repent and you say, God, I need you, would you come enter my life? The moment that happens, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God himself, comes and enters your life and then empowers you to let go of the sinful habits, to let go of the sinful ways and embrace Jesus Christ in who he is. You see, when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, he permeates every part of us and we are radically transformed. It's a gift. God gives us God himself to indwell us, to live, us, to live the lives that we're supposed to live. Christianity meets men and women in their most radical need, separated from a holy God standing in the effects of their sins. And in that moment when they're separated from a holy God, here's the reality of it. If you stay in that place and you die separated from a holy God, that is the worst imaginable situation you can ever fathom or think of. But the good news is God made a way. God saw us in that place. God saw us in that desperation. God saw us in that place where we could stand only with our own merit and it wasn't good enough. He knew we needed the righteousness, the power from someone else. And so Jesus Christ came and now when we repent and believe and we give him our life and we invite him in, we stand in the power and the righteousness of Jesus Christ when we die and face a holy God. That's the gospel of Jesus. That's what this book is all about. Through Jesus, we have a radical answer. There's only two types of people in this world. There are only two types of people in this world. Rebels who are resistant to what God has done through Jesus Christ and rebels who have been rescued because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. You are either a resistant rebel or you're a rescued rebel. All humanity, according to the Bible, are rebels. We've all fallen short and rebelled against a holy God. And so you are either a resistant rebel who's resisting this amazing offer God gave or you are a rebel who has accepted that, repented, and are now rescued from that desperate situation. How do you get rescued? The Bible says in a spirit of humility and heartbrokenness, you do two things. First, you repent. It means to turn. You turn from your wicked ways and you turn to a holy God. You say, God, I need you in my life. Will you please forgive me of my sin? I want to turn from the ways I'm living and I want to live for you. The second thing you have to do is believe. And it's not just a belief in your head where you just believe that God exists. It's a belief where you take the throne of your heart, where you rule and reign over your life, and you give that throne to Jesus Christ. And you say, I'm believing in you with my whole being, with all that I have. I'm believing into you, Jesus Christ. And now you are the ruler and reign, the one who reigns on the throne of my life. You transfer ownership from yourself to God. And when you do that, the power of the Holy Spirit now comes and the Holy Spirit lives within you to empower you to live a new way. 
well, how do I know if I've done that or not? I'm not sure. Some of you are here and you're saying, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I did that. How can I make sure that I did that? When you leave today, there's an amazing little booklet we like to give out here at Crossview Church called Knowing God Personally. And if you're unsure, did I do this? Did I not do it? Maybe I did it and I fell away and I need to refigure that out. If you have no idea where you stand right now before a holy God, go to the Welcome Center when this is done and ask for a copy of this booklet and they'll give it to you. But here's the thing. Don't be passive about it. Tonight, before you put your head on the pillow, you take this booklet out and you read through that and you see where your heart is before God. And if he's calling you to follow him and you sense that, the booklet will show you how to do it. Just do that. Give him your life. Take time to consider where you're at before a holy God. Because God did something amazing. He saw us on a path to eternal destruction. And God so loved the world that he sent his son to give us eternal life. Let's ask him to let that reality come true in our own lives right now as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this amazing gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that your heart was such that you saw your people far from you. And in your justice and in your truth and in the integrity of who you are, you didn't just pretend like the sins weren't there, but you put together a plan where sin could be redeemed, where the penalty could be paid, where righteousness could still rule and reign through your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray this amazing good news would open up the eyes of our heart in terms of our relationship to you, would open up ways and pathways of thinking about who you are. God, let the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ permeate our minds, our wills, our thoughts, and our emotions. And God, just as we stand kind of in the same place where the people who heard Mark's message stand. We're, we're in that spot preparing for what's ahead in this book. Will you prepare our hearts this morning to receive you, Jesus Christ, the only true Son of God, the only way to eternal life? Would you come and make this happen now by the power of your Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name.